Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, really from wherever you are, it's great to have you along for the ride. And as most of you know, uh, we're in the middle of a series called Next Steps that was designed for any of us who entered into the new year with a desire to grow in our faith. Uh, and I decided to do this series after a series of conversations with a whole bunch of you who confessed that the pandemic had sort of left you feeling a bit stalled in your pursuit of God. And you wondered, like, what would it look like for me to make an intentional step towards re-engaging in my faith journey? And so that is, I don't know why I'm clicking. I'll try not to dance too much or something. Anyway, uh, that's what this Next Step series is about. We're taking five weeks uh, at the start of this year to look at five simple, practical, highly intuitive steps that you can take in order to activate all sorts of potential in your faith. Uh, steps, as I've said, that have been proven effective time and time again. Okay, so now with our time today, we're going to explore the final step. And to get us going, I need to begin with a rather uncomfortable observation. So buckle up, right? Here it is. Uh, there is an undeniable connection between challenging circumstances and a growing faith. An undeniable connection. In other words, our faith is often strengthened during confusing and disorienting seasons of life. Maybe it's like a, a cancer diagnosis or a, a routine physical that uncovers an urgent need for medical intervention. Pay no attention to the attractive man walking up next to me. You know, I did turn, I turned, oh, so, oh. don't worry, I turned mine on. <laughs> now, now I have two. Do you want yeah, the I'm other gonna, one? I'm going to tuck it in your pocket. Okay. <laughs> for those of you watching online, it's as awkward here as it is for you. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So <laughs> where in the world? Yeah. Challenging. Aha. Undeniable connection between challenging circumstances and a growing faith. And, and maybe it's something with regards to your health. Maybe it's like trouble in your marriage or an extended season of infertility, or an unexpected job loss, or even like periods of volatility in the financial markets. Like whatever the specifics of the challenge. I mean, I've done this for a while. I've noticed that, that when the challenge passes, and they almost always do, many of us come out the other side and recognize that God did something in that season that wouldn't have happened any other way. And even though like we would never have signed up for it, and we never want to do it again, and we wouldn't even wish it upon our worst enemies. We realize that we wouldn't be where we are in our faith it, it, had we not experienced that challenge. And honestly, we, we say things like, you know, I feel like God met me in that space. And, and, and maybe it was in that space, at that season, that God, as my heavenly father, moved from like this loose concept to something that felt real. I actually think this is what C.S. Lewis is getting after, he who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you're searching, right? Uh, he wrote about this uh, decades ago in a book called The Problem of Pain. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He just observes, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but, but he shouts in our pain. And I love this. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Okay, so now... Um, if you stop to think about it, if this is true, if there's a strong connection between a growing faith and pain in life, then it really shouldn't surprise us that God has chosen to leverage this connection almost since the beginning. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this is found in a narrative from the life of Jesus that I want to explore with you 
this morning. And fair warning, um, it's a little bit uncomfortable because in this narrative, Jesus doesn't just leverage a challenging circumstance to grow someone's faith. He actually creates a challenging circumstance to grow someone's faith. Seriously. So let me show you what I mean. An early Jesus follower named John, in his account of the life of Jesus, sets up the story for us this way. John writes, now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So as the story opens, John reintroduces, or reminds rather, his readers that three of the main characters, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, all lived in a village called Bethany. Bethany was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And from previous narratives, John's readers would have known that Jesus and his disciples would often stay with this family when they were visiting Jerusalem. In other words, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were Jesus' friends. And that detail becomes incredibly important as the account continues. John tells us that, so Lazarus is sick, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And you got to love this, right? Apparently, when you said the one you loved to Jesus, Jesus thought of Lazarus. I thought that was funny. Never mind, right? This is something, to, you know, Lazarus could brag about this. He could have been the one who wrote the words, Jesus loves me, this I know. Like, that's next level stuff, right? That's some serious biblical swagger. Anyway, you should know that Mary and Martha sent this message to Jesus knowing that he had power in his hands, knowing that he had healed complete strangers. In fact, they had probably observed him standing in front of a line of sick people and healing them one by one. So, like, they would have had no doubt that Jesus would come immediately and heal the one he loved. But that's not exactly how things went down. And John says that instead, when he heard this, Jesus said to his disciples there, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified to it, which, um, if you're honest, is a little bit cryptic, right? I mean, what, what is Jesus talking about here? I think he's identifying something that I like to call pain with a purpose. Pain with a purpose. Like, if you had asked Jesus why Lazarus was sick, he'd tell you that, well, it wasn't random. In fact, it had something to do with God's plan. We, send, we tend to see sickness as categorically bad, and from our perspective, it is, but but in this passage, it's like Jesus identifies the reality that there may actually be redemptive potential at the heart of any challenging situation, including sickness. Okay, so now, fair warning, as the story continues, it's about to take a really unexpected turn. But before it does, and I love this, John reiterates something. He tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. And you're like, okay, John, why would you, you just said that. Why in the world would you tell us that? Why does that need to be crystal clear? And it needs to be clear because of what comes next. What comes next is pretty unbelievable. Here's what John tells us. So, like he loved them so, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. <laughs> and I know what some of you are thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. Like you want to raise your hand and go, uh, wait a minute, that isn't the very Jesus-y thing to do, Jesus. I mean, I know you're Jesus, so that is, but seriously, like, even if Jesus didn't love Lazarus, even if he just loved Mary and Martha, he would go and heal him for them. So what in the world is going on? It's, it's really strange. And not surprisingly, the disciples, the, the 12, assume they'll leave immediately to help Lazarus, but they don't. Instead, Jesus tells them to wait. And, and by the way, this is one of those passages that helps me trust that the events recorded in the Bible actually happened as described. 
here's what I mean. Like, the stories of Jesus' life are brutally honest and often awkward. Like, everything about this story so far is wrong. <laughs> so it just gives, it's like, I think they preserved it as it happened. So anyway, as John's narrative continues, 48 hours pass. 48 insanely long hours during which Lazarus and Mary and Martha suffered. And just imagine with me, like, Mary watching over Lazarus while he is in absolute agony, while Mary scans the horizon looking for a Jesus who never comes. And I just imagine as the hours rolled by, like, their collective frustration and confusion and disappointment grew. Well, then after two days, uh, Jesus informs his disciples that the time has come to finally go and see Lazarus. Uh, but one of them sort of raises their hand and asks a question to Jesus, and it's a good question. He says, okay, we're going to go, but Rabbi, that's Jesus. Like a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. That's like in, in around Jerusalem, and yet you're going to go back. In other words, Jesus, maybe you've forgotten, but the last time we were in that area, how shall we put this? Things did not go well. They do not like you. <laughs> and um, I mean, are, are you sure that we need to go back? Like you've done some cool things. Couldn't you just sort of like heal Lazarus wirelessly, right? I mean, don't you have that new 5G wideband or something coming, right? Like, could you just leverage that? And, and Jesus responds, um, our friend Lazarus, he like ignores the objection. I love it. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Like, we get how this works, right? And the disciples aren't catching Jesus' drift. So John, who's narrating the story for us, uh, gives us a bit of commentary. He tells us, Jesus, um, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he says, then he told them plainly. He's like, okay, guys, you're not catching my drift here. Lazarus is dead. And then he says this other thing that is just interesting. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Now, now is it just me or does Jesus' comment seem a bit insensitive, right? It's like, okay, wait, Jesus, you knew Lazarus was going to die. And so you let Mary and Martha watch him die and you let Lazarus suffer. And then you're saying you're glad that you weren't there to save the life of the one that you loved. I mean, it is a bizarre turn of events, which raises a really great one-word question. You probably have asked this before at one point or another in your faith journey, and it goes like this. Why? <laughs> like, what is going on? Why would Jesus allow this? And what possibly could be so important for the disciples to learn? Well, as the account continues, Jesus actually tells them. He tells them why he allowed this to happen. And he says it this way. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Here it is. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So, like, apparently Jesus is willing to allow a friend to die in order to build the faith of his disciples. It was that big a deal to him. It was for their sake, which honestly makes me want to raise my hand and say, yeah, but what about Mary and Martha's sake? <laughs> and how about Lazarus' sake? He's had a very bad run here, right? <laughs> and, well, here's where I think, here's what I think is going on in this scene. I think Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and he realized and recognized they were the ones who would soon be taking his mission and message to the world, a world that desperately needed to hear it. And, and they, they weren't close to ready yet. And so apparently, in this moment, building their faith was worth the pain. Apparently, Jesus was even willing to make some unpleasant concessions so that their faith could be built. 
All right, now, um, what comes next um, as the account continues, uh, one of the disciples raises his voice to encourage his brothers. Here's what he says. He says, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And if you think about it, this is really funny, right? Um, sometimes, like, Randall will be walking by my office, and I'll just be laughing because I'm reading the Bible, and he's like, you are so weird. And I, it's true, but let me tell you why this is funny. Do you guys remember the character Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Who's with me? Eeyore? He was the one who was never encouraging or optimistic about anything. He was the one, like, over whom there was always a rain cloud. Yeah. Like, and if we're honest, we all know people like that, don't we? Right? Some of you married an Eeyore. Eh? Some of you work with an Eeyore. Like, they're your boss, and goal setting is tragically awful every year. Some of you have children that are Eeyores. You know, my wife and I have four boys and we were like, we're going to keep trying and there's going to be an Eeyore in the mix somewhere, but you don't know when they're babies always. It's just when they start to talk and then you're like, oh, there it is, an Eeyore. Yeah. Uh, some of you are sitting next to an ER right now, but don't nudge them. It's awkward. Yeah. Um, but you get this. Like, so Thomas looks at the rest of the disciples and basically says like, Lazarus is dead and the Jews are going to stone Jesus and us. So I guess we should just get it over with. You know, I just love it. So good. Anyway, John continues. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And we don't catch what's really going on. But for John's original audience who were Jewish, uh, the fact that Lazarus had been dead for four days is really important. See, in the first century, uh, the Jewish people were taught that the spirit of a person hovered over their dead body for three days. And then after that, the spirit would depart from the body. And after the spirit departed from the body, like, there was no hope. There was absolutely no hope. And, and so it's important that we don't miss the drama of this moment. I mean, four days had passed. Lazarus had died days earlier without hospice care, without drugs. His sisters who knew Jesus and Jesus knew them and who loved Jesus and Jesus loved them had sent a message and assumed Jesus would come immediately, but he didn't. He had failed them, and now Lazarus was dead. And they had to wrap his body in grave clothes like a mummy, and they had to put him in a tomb, and they had to roll a rock in front of the tomb. I actually brought a picture from Israel of what these tombs looked like. You can find them uh, here and there in the ancient world if you can find that picture. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's primitive. Uh, it's powerful moment, so you just kind of imagine the scene. And, and they're, they're doing this all the while wondering, like, where was Jesus? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, where, where is he? And before we go any farther, i got to ask you something. Have you ever found yourself asking that question? I mean, have you ever felt like you were sort of sitting in heaven's waiting room? And the fluorescent lights are buzzing, right? And you know the problem, and you're very confident that God knows the problem, but you're like waiting on God to intervene somehow or some way in your situation. And as the time passed, like, if you're honest, he seemed increasingly in, unattentive and uninterested in bringing you the help that you need. I mean, have you ever had a season in which you felt like your prayers were just like bouncing off the ceiling? And, and it's like you started to get frustrated and you were waiting and praying and crying out to God, but he just didn't seem to be listening. Like, like in my experience, I mean, it can happen during all sorts of challenging seasons, during relational storms and financial storms and vocational storms, educational storms, and even like a, a collapse in health. 
And then we, we cry out to God and we pray and we ask him to intervene and we're just met with radio silence. I, I'm convinced that eventually all of us get to spend some time in heaven's waiting room. And the only question when we find ourselves in those moments, and some of you are there this morning, you're like, dude, you're reading my mail. I walked in and this is, this is right where I'm sitting and I'm waiting on God and I'm starting to wonder if, if he's even there, like he's not paying attention. And the question, if you find yourself there this morning or at some point in the future, the question is, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What can you do? What are your options? Okay, so now let's jump back into the story. And as we've said, Mary and Martha were extremely disappointed in Jesus. And then finally, he came. And John described the reunion for us this way. He wrote, when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. And you're like, why would Mary stay at home? I think I know. I think she was mad at Jesus. She was thinking what we would be thinking in this situation, something like he could have, he should have, but he didn't. Therefore, conclusion, he doesn't really care about us. So why would I go see him? Anyway, uh, Martha encounters Jesus and confronts him directly. She says to him, hey, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, like Jesus, this is your fault. And I've seen you heal other people that you didn't even know. Like, how could you do this to us? And then she turns a little bit because she's seen the power of Jesus. And so she says this, but she says, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So if I have a string of hope in this moment, here it is. And then Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha thinks she's getting a theology lesson here. She's like, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. It's like one of those moments in funerals where you're like overcome with grief and someone walks up to you and you go, you know, they're in a better place. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to punch you in the face, right? Yeah. Like even it, as unto the Lord, even if that's true, it's just not that helpful. And so in this moment, like Martha doesn't want a theological lesson. She wants answers. She's like, Jesus, why didn't you show up when we needed you? And Jesus looks right in the eyes of this angry, confused woman and said something absolutely incredible. Here's what he said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And then these four words, do you believe this? Translation, um, Mary, are you willing to trust me even though I didn't do what you wanted me to do? Are you willing to trust me even when someone that you love is sick and healing doesn't come will you believe in me even when you're going through something terrible and see i don't think this is just a question for her i think this is a question for all of us because each one of us has a choice when we find ourselves in heaven's waiting room we can choose to trust that god is at work behind the scenes doing things that we can only begin to understand or we can get up and walk out of the waiting room and walk away from faith and I'm telling you, what we choose to do in those moments often determines the trajectory, not only of our faith, but of our life. Anyway, as the narrative continues, Martha brings Jesus to Mary. And John tells us that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And he asked a question. He says, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, they replied, and they lead him to the tomb where the rock has been rolled in front. 
And then John records something that honestly is a bit unexpected because if you grew up in church, you know, Jesus can sometimes come across like this super peaceful sheep holding guy with long flowing wind hair. You know what I'm talking about? Like just not very emotional. But, but in this moment, John tells us just two words. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, Trivial Pursuit, right? Jesus wept. And when he wept, this communicated something so powerful to everyone standing there and everyone who reads this account decades later and, and generations later, right? It's like Jesus in this moment demonstrates that he's not too big to understand. He's not too powerful to understand. And he's not too distant to understand. He knows what it's like and he knows how it feels. When we hurt, he hurts. When tears fill our eyes... I can imagine that tears fill his eyes as well. And, and then the Jews who were gathered at the tomb said what we would say in the moment. They said this, uh, see how he loved him. Like they had a connection. It was real. It was authentic. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, if he loves him so much, why didn't he do something to help him? And then John continues. Jesus, he says, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And then he said, take away the stone. And you should know, if you grew up in church, like you've heard this story a bunch, right? Uh, but you should know, no one that day was expecting this. I mean, they're already frustrated and now they were confused. And in the moment, like Martha raises a concern, she says to Jesus, but Lord, uh, by this time, there's a bad odor, super practical here, for he's been there four days. I mean, maybe you want to pay your last respects or look at the mummy or whatever, but uh, dude, it's not going to, you shouldn't do that, right? And I love this. It's just so honest, so practical. And then, um, by the way, if you grew up in church uh, like I did, the King James Version of this Bible, you may remember this. Um, it was uh, released in the early 1600s. And let me show you how this verse reads, and this is so good. He says, Lord, by this time... He stinketh. <laughs> I have no idea why it makes me laugh every time, but I love it, right? Anyway, Jesus, you get the idea. Jesus responds. Did I not tell you, he says, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In other words, Mary, like, this whole thing is about whether or not you will choose to believe that God is at work in the middle of your mess. Whether you're willing to keep your eyes open and continue to trust and keep moving forward with the belief that God is telling a bigger story than the one that you can see right now. Will you look past the present moment and will you choose to believe that God is still at work? And then John tells us what happens next. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I can just imagine like, you could have heard a pin drop. They haven't even invented pins yet, but if they had, you would have heard a pin drop, right? And then all of a sudden, there's a, a rustling in the cave. And Lazarus, wrapped like a mummy, comes. It's like something right out of Hollywood, right? The dead man came out, which is not even true, John. He wasn't dead anymore, but anyway. Dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, take off the grave clothes and let him Go And I absolutely love that Jesus had to say, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Do you know why Jesus had to say, take off the grave clothes and let him go? <laughs> because nobody was moving. <laughs> right? What would you be doing? Like, I need to unwrap him immediately. You're like, no, this is, this is insane. Everybody's just staring. 
And in response, Jesus tells us what happened after this day. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. And I found myself in my notes, I wrote, I bet they did. <laughs> I bet like the whole town came to faith. There was like revival breaks out and Lazarus is leading the worship set or whatever, right? This news spread to Jerusalem like wildfire. This is actually one of the events that catches the attention of the temple establishment. The Jewish leaders around the temple and they started to see Jesus. We got to take him out because he's going to be unstoppable. Jesus didn't just heal somebody. He healed a man who had been dead. And if he can do that, like, he can do anything. And so I say all that to say Jesus didn't simply leverage a challenging circumstance in this story. He created one. I think in part to illustrate the connection between challenging circumstances and the potential growth of our faith. And that's why I'm convinced that God can leverage anything and everything to grow your faith and my faith. In fact, I'm convinced that the biggest challenge in your life right now, whatever it is, whether it's something relational or vocational or financial or physical, that, that, that situation that you've just run out of answers. Like, I don't even know what else to try. This is so desperate. It's like in that moment, that's actually your greatest opportunity to grow in your relationship with God. It's like when we run out of answers of our own, there's this natural tendency to sort of look up and go, okay, God, do you have anything that you can say or do? And I will choose to trust that you're, up, you're at work and you're working behind the scenes. I mean, it, but it, it's also easy when life falls apart to like lose faith. That almost is more natural. But if you're tempted to do that and you found yourself here this morning, let me just encourage you with this. Because of this account, there's a few things we know. Number one, we know that people who Jesus loved struggled with challenging circumstances. And therefore, when we experience trouble in life, that doesn't mean that God does not love us. Second thing we know here is that God is always capable of doing something to ease our suffering, but sometimes he waits. Sometimes he makes us wait because, well, he's telling a bigger story with our lives than we can imagine. And so he invites us to trust him, to like open our hands and open our hearts and say, God, I'm just going to give this to you. I have no way to control this anymore, and I'm not going to descend into fear and anxiety and worry. I'm just going to hand this to you, and, and I'm going to trust. If I'm in the waiting room, I'm just going to trust. That's the posture. And, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, when you do this, more often than not, you come out the other side of your challenge with more faith, not less. And in fact, the discussion questions this week, I mean, there's a few, we'll put them up on the screen. You can take a picture with your phone or find them on the website. But the discussion questions this week are all about sharing what your experience with this principle has been in the past. And you'd be surprised how many people would say, man, I went through this and I would never be what I am today or believe what I believe today without that experience. And it was awful. And those stories, for those of us that are in the middle of the mess right now, give us hope. And so now before, before I let you go, we wanted to close our time today by listening to a song together. So the band's going to come back out. And I just want to give you a little space, especially if you came in here and, and you were looking for answers. Um, and, and maybe you didn't get an answer, but you got a different way to think about the situation that you're in. But I, I want to I just give you some time and some space to reflect. 
And it's a beautiful song, again, especially if you find yourself in heaven's waiting room right now. It's, it's, it's a song that's called Hold On to Me. And it's sort of like a prayer. It's a prayer to God that, that he would make his presence known to us in times when we can't see the bigger story. So let's listen to this together and then I'll call him back up and I'll close our time in prayer. When the best of me is barely breathing, when I'm not somebody I believe in, hold on to me. When I miss the light, I'm so mad. When I'm slamming on doors you've opened, hold on to me. Hold on to me. Hold on to me. It's a reality that changes everything because it's a reality that can cause hope to rise. In just a moment, I'll close our time in prayer, but 
Once again this week, I want to invite you, um, if you came here and, and you need prayer or you need to talk to somebody, uh, we've got a team that will be under the screen right over here, just an opportunity um, to receive some prayer and some encouragement. And so if that's you, you can take advantage of that. And also just a reminder, um, especially if you normally go out the side door, right in the front in the corner uh, where all the glass uh, dwells, there's a bunch of people that would love to talk to you about taking a next step in a group, maybe Take a step out of a row into a circle to share some of your story. Because again, it, life is better when we're connected. Encourage one another. In times where we need to borrow some faith from someone else, we've got people that we can do that for. So why don't you stand and I'll close our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, This is a hard truth, but this is a good truth. And so I pray for those of us who came in here and this morning tuned in online and we're just running out of answers. I pray that you give us the courage to look up, to acknowledge our need for you. And I pray that you would meet us in that space. Maybe by intervening in our situation, but maybe just by reminding us that despite our situation, we are loved and you're at work. And eventually this will be a story that we tell of your faithfulness. And so we thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for believing in us. Thank you for sending Jesus as one of us light and darkness to show us the way. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Hope of a life beyond this life. It is in his name. In the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.